coming up on Philosophy Talk. What is good is what is pleasurable. What is bad is what is painful. Epicurus and the good life. When I was 17, it was a very good year. Are freedom from fear and absence of pain truly the marks of the good life? When I was 35, it was a very good year. Isn't Epicurus all about sensual pleasure? But now the days are short. What does it mean to live a happy, tranquil life? Our guest is David Constant from NYU. Epicurus and the good life. Live long and prosper. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Where we continue conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ken and I are professors of philosophy. Today's conversation is about Epicurus and the good life. In common parlance, an Epicurean is someone who is, quote, fond of luxury or indulgence in sensual pleasures. The Epicurean has luxurious tastes or habits, especially in eating and drinking. But, you know, the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, who we're going to talk about today, was decidedly not an Epicurean in that sense of the word. His philosophy is actually pretty far removed from Epicureanism as ordinarily understood. Epicurus acknowledged that desires for good food and fine wine were perfectly natural. But he actually dismissed these desires as unnecessary and argued that pursuing them could set you up for a life of disappointment, of pain, of anxiety and distress. The real key to human happiness, on his view at least, is avoiding bodily pain and mental distress. It's not in positively pursuing luxury and excessive sensual pleasures. We don't want to make it sound like Epicurus was opposed to the pursuit of pleasure. He just thought that we should pursue pleasures of the right kind. These would be pleasures brought about by the satisfaction of what he called our natural and necessary desires. Simple things like the desire for food or the company of good friends. Or, as you put it, Ken, the desire for avoiding physical pain and mental distress. You know, John, calling some desires natural and necessary suggests that other desires are unnatural and or unnecessary. Exactly right. We already gave one example of a natural but unnecessary desire, the desire for fine food and drink. An example of a completely unnatural desire is the desire for immortality, a desire born, according to Epicurus, of the unreasonable fear of death. Unreasonable? Unnatural? Look, the desire not to die seems like the most natural thing in the world. And it seems, you know, perfectly natural, too, I would think. You think it's rational? Well, not according to Epicurus. It just gets in the way. It prevents us from living well. The desire for immortality is, after all, certain to go unsatisfied. Unsatisfied desires are, are the main cause of pain and anxiety. 
One of Epicurus's main philosophical aims was to help people free themselves from such desires, to refocus on the simple and easy pleasures that come from satisfying our natural and necessary desires. So if we just rid ourselves of things like the desire for immortality, face death with equanimity, everything's going to be all right? Is that the idea? You got it, Ken. I, I don't buy it. Look, Epicurus needs to read his Shakespeare Death is the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. It puzzles the will, makes cowards of us all. It, in other words, it's intrinsically and naturally loathsome. It's quite reasonable to fear death. Jeez, Ken, quoting Hamlet, Hamlet is your poster child for the true path to happiness. Hamlet just proves Epicurus's point. Ask yourself why Hamlet, who was a prince after all, finds the slings and arrows of his, quote, outrageous fortune so unbearable. It's partly because his fear that death would be even more unbearable than life adds to his already high level of anxiety. So he whines on and on about his life, and his whining prevents him from taking action and taking pleasure in his life. Well, Hamlet has a point, doesn't he? Look, as bad as life may be, death is worse, infinitely worse. You know, it does last forever, John. No, he doesn't have a point. Look, I admit that the act of dying, the process of dying, can be a bad thing. Who wants to die in a horrible and painful fashion or in some fruitless forlorn war? But the state of being dead, that's neither a good nor a bad thing. It's a non-thing. When Hamlet dies, he doesn't have any more experiences. He doesn't start having awful experiences. He doesn't continue to have great experiences. He's just Gone. Once Hamlet is dead, there's no Hamlet left to experience either suffering or joy. That's supposed to be a comforting thought, John Jeepers. People find the prospect of infinite oblivion horrifying. We find it so horrifying that, you know what we did? We invented the afterlife to diminish the horror. Well, that's confusion and false comfort and pointless to boot. People should be no more horrified by the infinite oblivion that follows death than by the infinite oblivion that preceded birth. The one is no better and no worse than the other. I see your point, sort of. But I do see that there's a lot to talk about here. Epicurus may not be an Epicurean in the common meaning of that word, but he's certainly a fascinating, provocative philosopher. Yeah, we've just scratched the surface, Ken. Epicurus is intriguing, he's profound, he's widely influential, and widely misunderstood. You know, since pleasure and pain are such key elements in Epicurus's thinking, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, to find some modern scientific explanations of that pair. She files this report. For Epicurus, pleasure was the absence of pain and suffering. For the rest of us, pleasure might be the feeling we get from a warm day at the beach, or a chocolate bar, or a lover's kiss. But what is pleasure to a neurologist like UCSF professor Howard Fields? Well, a specific subset of neurons that are connected to each other are activated in a particular temporal sequence. And that pattern of activity is interpreted as feeling good. If that's pleasure, then what is pain? Ooh, pain is sort of the opposite. Jennifer Mitchell is the clinical project director at the Ernest Gallo Clinic and Research Center. Some people like to think of these as a continuum, where on one side is pain, on the other side is pleasure, and then everything that you do is somewhere in between. 
Mitchell studies the brains of alcoholics. She's the lead author of a new paper looking at the effects of drinking on the pleasure circuits of the brain. First, she recruited 25 subjects through an ad on Craigslist. It said, um, are you a social drinker? Would you like to be in our study? She brought them to the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. There, she scanned their brains using positron emission tomography, or PET scans. And then we give them a double shot, pretty much. Then she scanned their brains again. After comparing the before and after shots, her team discovered something that had never been shown in humans before. We found that alcohol induces the release of endorphins in your brain, and it does that in a couple of very important places that have been previously associated with pleasure. In other words, the researchers proved what people have known for a long time. Alcohol makes you feel good. But that wasn't Mitchell's ultimate goal. The discovery could help develop a drug that blocks that good feeling you get from a glass of wine. A drug that could potentially take away an alcoholic's drive to keep drinking. Exactly. So it is like a, a little bit of a pleasure blocker. And obviously we would like it to be super specific so that pleasure in general is not taken away. Which raises the question, why seek pleasure through excessive drinking, eating, or other behaviors if you know it's bad for you in the long run, if it ultimately reduces your happiness? Again, Howard Fields from UCSF. The inability to delay gratification is what we call impulsivity, and there definitely is a genetic predisposition to impulsivity. Drug addicts and alcoholics are more impulsive than normals, Field says. But what about people who actually seem to choose pain over pleasure, like sadomasochists, or people who just make bad choices? Fields points to a well-known experiment by the Russian psychologist Ivan Pavlov. A scientist rings a bell before feeding a group of dogs. Eventually, the dogs begin to associate the bell with food, and they salivate whenever they hear it. So instead of using a bell, he used pinching of the paw as the signal. Right. So initially, when you pinch a dog's paw, it's going to pull the paw away, it's going to bark, it's going to try to bite your, your hand and, and stop it. But eventually, after pinching the paws of hungry dogs and feeding them over and over again, their behavior starts to change. They begin to salivate whenever their paws are pinched. One could imagine that what the dogs were feeling with the paw pinch was not the pain so much as an indication that something good was going to happen. There's got to be some element that's rewarding for the painful stimulus itself to be sought out. In other words, dogs, like people, will choose pain when it leads to greater pleasure. How Epicurean. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.